This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Our justice system is going through some changes right now, has been through some changes, has been dealing with a lot of different ways of doing things because of what has happened in the pandemic and during the pandemic. And we have an opportunity right now to talk about some of the changes that have taken place and then an opportunity to look forward and say, all right, if they were doing this before, and they were able to do this, then could this continue going forward? Well, we're about to find out. Please welcome the Attorney General of the Province of Ontario to London Live right now, Mr. Doug Downey. Mr. Downey, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Yeah, great to reconnect again, Mike. It's great. It is great to hear from you. I think last time we we brought up the idea that fax machines still had to be a part of our justice system. And you can look around and you, you've got to be careful how much goes virtual because how many times are we sitting around and maybe you're on your phone, maybe you're on a tablet and you think, hey, where, where'd the Wi-Fi go? Hey, hey, where'd the Internet go? And it's down for a little while. Difficult to have that in the justice system if that were to pop up, isn't it? Well, we do we do have to right size things. We have to make sure that the right things are online, and the, some things that that can't be uh, aren't. But we're we're going through that. The problem is is that so much of our justice system was paper based and in person based, and it was just it was just so uh, you know gummed up. It, it, we we've really got an opportunity here to to move this system forward, and I I think we've moved it forward decades in in, in a year. And isn't that wild? And what would you look at as being the key to kind of getting those changes started? Well, I, I think part of it, we, we started some of the changes before the pandemic, like some of some of the remote commissioning, like commissioning online for documents, that kind of stuff. Um, so we'd already started, but then when the, when the pandemic came, uh, when COVID came, it brought all the justice partners together to say, we have to do it differently. So although a bunch of us wanted it, uh, it really brought everybody together and the momentum we've changed how we make change even it's uh, it's incredible okay change how you make changes enlighten us <laughs> what yeah, do you mean well, by that look I, I can send out a note to, to practitioners all over the province who let's say in a state's law and say let's talk about how we do something differently and we have people donate their time or engage with us from every corner of the province not just people who can get there on a plane and sit down for half a day so we we can have real real time uh, ongoing iterative conversations about change and then implement and then have the conversation again and implement the next stage. It's moving much faster and it's very practical because we're involving rural and northern and indigenous communities. Um, it, it's really productive. What would you say was the hurdle that prevented something as simple as reaching out and, and getting the ball rolling going before? What was in the way? I, you know what? Two words, political will. Uh, it just we my team has been phenomenal and and I've had the support of of the rest of my cabinet and the premier to to revolutionize this area of of government operations and so I've had the support both financially morally and and by opening doors and collaborating it's I just don't think that has happened in in decades we're talking right now with Ontario Attorney General Doug Downey. Mr. Downey, let's kind of look at some of the things that have been changed in all of this. The idea that 
you have a court appearance and it's way down the road and then there can be long tie-ups and, and proceedings that may go beyond what they thought and then that might push things. And so anyone who has dealt with the justice system knows that there's a chance you may have some delays. If we go back to May 18th, virtual witnesses, virtual wills and powers of attorney. Can you tell us what that now means and what that does? Yeah, just just in just in the estates area. I mean, it, it saves people time and money to be able to to do things from from their home or their business and not have to be traveling to to a metro center to have it done or to go see their lawyer um, you know, multiple times. And in terms of processing estates, we we're using this incredible thing called the internet. Right, we're we're actually electronically issuing probate certificates, and and it's happening so much faster. And that lets people who are the ultimate users of the system uh, say they're waiting on on a probate certificate to sell a property or to cash stocks, that kind of thing. It's speeding that up, and it's just it's just better for everybody. There's really very few complaints. Uh, if any, at so all. take us behind the scenes before. How would that have to happen? Would would an actual oh my court appointment yeah. have to be made? So yeah, so you come down. If you want to make a will, you generally you, you get a hold of your your lawyer. You make an appointment. You come down. You go through. They get instructions. They draft it. Uh, so you drive back home again. They draft it. You come back the next week or the week after. Um, you then sit down and go through it. If there's changes to be made, you may have to go home again and back a third time. Um, this way, you can you can send it in real time, get on screen, have a conversation. Um, there, there's a way to, to witness them uh, and fix it in real time and, and just get it done. Um, the, the impact. One of the on, other things. The average, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, no, please go ahead. Well, I get excited. I could talk all day long about some of these these amazing ways that we're saving people time and money. It's making the system more affordable. Uh, court appearances are happening when they're scheduled to happen, and you're not paying the lawyer to travel to the courthouse and back. So it's saving people money that way as well. Exactly. That's what this is all about. At the end of the day, is the people who, who the system should be built for and who are ultimately paying for it. So that extends to, like you say, estates or, um, you know, clients' rights and responsibilities on contingency fee agreements, all kinds of, would, would these be some of those, those paperwork type things that, you know, when you looked at it, you said, yeah, it's paperwork, but it's, it's also footwork. Have, has the footwork been removed? Is that the best way to say it? A, a lot of that. So now even small claims, you can do online filing uh, where you had to do it in paper before. Uh, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of new documents that can be filed in family and civil court. Uh, we've brought in uh, what's called criminal e-intake, which is the paperwork that the police officers have to send to the court. We can now do that electronically for, for warrants. We have e-warrants. Um, all this stuff where people were driving around moving a piece of paper, we, we found a way to, to do it electronically. And it's, again, it's, save, it's letting police officers, for instance, spend the time doing the, their highest level of work rather than, than moving paper around. 
Yeah, when we think about police officers, one of the things that becomes very difficult with their job, and we've heard this countless times, is that their job is not just about going out and, and policing. It is paperwork, and it is going to you know similar things night after night or day after day and similar calls. And so to be able to say, okay, the, then that cuts down on, on some of their footwork, That's that sounds like a positive, doesn't it? It is really positive. I'm really excited. We, again, we've we've brought it. We've looked at it as a system and not just individual buckets of of responsibility. We said, how do we change the system and how do we make it flow better? How do we how do we make it better for for the public who's paying for it, the user experience? Uh, we're again, we're changing how how the courts are working. We're changing how you file things, and we've recently uh, we've recently announced twenty eight million twenty eight and a half million. To change how tribunals work, we're, we're adopting a system and building it for the Ontario experience. But we're adopting a system that BC has used for years, and that will affect landlord-tenant. It'll affect a whole variety of, of things. So we're trying to make change. We are making change in every sector of, of law. I want to touch on on one more thing. We are talking with Ontario Attorney General Doug Downey, and if we're to look at victims of sexual assault and those who maybe could not afford legal advice, can you take us through a change that has been made not too long ago, but a change that will allow them to maybe get legal advice before you know, looking into their case further? Yeah, we've we've made a few changes to support the victims, and the one that, that you're referencing is is free advice from from the government, from crowns, uh, for for victims to have a a one on one conversation about their particular circumstance. But we've also increased supports for the victim service organizations uh, through a program called uh, VQRP Plus. Uh, we've made substantial uh, historic record. Uh, investments in human trafficking, which is which is a shocking reality in Ontario. Uh, so yeah, we're trying to create supports and and victims of crime fund. Uh, we we've changed that so that we're we're able to support more people. Uh, pretty pretty proud of our record on on our support for victim services. So, Mr. Downey, if we look at what this should do, obviously saving time is good, saving money is good. Is there anything that you're watching closely to see how it unfolds? Yeah, I, I want to make sure that, that the people who are encountering the system, and often for the first time and often in a very stressful period of their life, I want to make sure that the system's operating the way that it should for them. And, and it's one thing to build a good system for a certain segment of society, uh, we have to make sure that it fits. We have to make sure that it fits for everybody. Well, I guess time will tell on that one, will it not? It sure will. We really appreciate the time, Mr. Downey. Thank you for taking it, and please keep safe. Yes. Thanks again, Mike. Have a great day. That is Ontario Attorney General Doug Downey on just some of those changes. We've touched base a couple of times over the past year with the Attorney General looking at, okay, as, as he mentioned off the start, this was overcoming what he termed political will and the idea that, well, we want to do these things, and then you'd have people saying, nah, 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 no, that's, uh, no, no, uh, no, other things to do, other things to do, and then all of a sudden a pandemic hits, and it's, well, we kind of have to do this now. So if someone wants this will and somebody else needs this will probated and somebody needs this, they need to do it. We And they can't do it in person. They can't come in. So we're going to do this virtually.
And then it's, you know, that worked. And if we did it this way, it would work even better. And then what about this? And then the wheels started moving. And so saving money, saving time, saving the courts, time, that's been absolutely key. And the other part of it is saving people who are involved on a regular basis, time. And so these changes have been put in place. Now we get an opportunity to find out how it works for police services, how it works for lawyers, how it, and then maybe little tweaks. But it's one of those things, you start a ball rolling, and sometimes it gains momentum. This seems to really be gaining momentum. So if you have some legal issues that come up or if you have something that you have to do through the courts make sure you're asking questions like that do i have to come in what what are the new protocols for this because there will be new protocols and are already new protocols in an awful lot of areas we have an opportunity right now to talk about our life online social media can be great brings people together helps to foster different communities of like-minded individuals. There are, are positives. There are also some negatives. And maybe the sports world provides two very good examples of this. Ethan Bear of the Edmonton Oilers turned a puck over and from there received all kinds of racist insults and comments that were attached to his social media. Awful stuff. Mark Shifley hits Jake Evans, gets suspended. His parents get trolled. Mitch Marner, by the way, deleted his social media accounts before the playoffs. And a lot of people tried to send him nasty things. And uh, they were just taking those and throwing them into a great big black hole. He got none of them. He read none of them. That, at least, is a positive in all of this. But it gives us an opportunity to talk with Dr. Thomas Cook, about online and privacy. Dr. Cook is a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Centre at Queen's University. Dr. Cook, I, I didn't mean to bring up the Toronto Maple Leafs and, and, and Mitch Marner. I didn't do that on purpose. I, I thought it went to our conversation. I'm, I'm over it. I'm, okay. I'm good. I gave okay. a guest talk this morning and I had my Maple Leaf mug out. I was a bit apprehensive <laughs> about that. But, I mean, aside from that, I kind of saw this coming. Uh, no comment further. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> well, if we look at maybe a, a broader discussion about using our identities, being us mm-hmm. on the Internet, can we start maybe with are we as anonymous as we think if we're using or not using our, our real name on social media? No, no, we're not. I, I think that any measures that we take to anonymize or conceal to spoof our location, for example, to make it look like we are somewhere else um, than we actually are. Those things are, you know, they, they work on a small scale to a small extent, but I think the biggest stake that we have to understand here is that the internet is asymmetrical. The data that we provide, so to speak, the personal information that we use to identify ourselves by our handles or our, our first and last name on Twitter or your, your DOB on Facebook, uh, th- th- those are data points that we can control. Those are ones that we negotiate to an extent. They're ones that we, we can facilitate in providing voluntarily. However, what I mean by asymmetry, Mike, is this. On the back end of that software, 
are thousands of different kinds of algorithms and application programming interfaces. There are different cloud-driven services. There are predictive analytics things going on in ways that turn to our smartphones and our laptops and our computers and your tablets and what have you to extrapolate all sorts of other kinds of discrete, uh, more sensitive data that is different than your personal information. And that's not data that we can see. For example, if I load up Google Maps, I can see the supposed GPS coordinate of where I am, and it would be very accurate uh, location update. It would probably be something smaller than five meters radius. But the actual raw measurements that are collected by Google and third-party advertisers to figure out where I'm going, where I've been, the velocity of my movement, my altitude, those are data that I can't see easily, but are being collected on me all the time. So when, when you you know, invoke this point about how and whether we can be anonymous, I have to correspond in asking what kinds of data do you want to make anonymous and which ones are considered the most important. Great questions. Okay, then what do we need to keep in mind when we're answering those questions for ourselves? The majority of the data that is being harvested in a way that could be potentially harmful to our privacy, to our civil rights, to our ability to travel, to be mobile as citizens freely, particularly if you're not a white man, those are things that you can't see. And the only way you can learn about those things is by trying to track them, which is almost impossible. It depends upon the, the context and the circumstances and the tools, of course. But it also depends upon the ability for certain networks of, act, uh, of advocates and activists to make those tools and techniques available. I think that the Electronic Frontier Foundation has done a really good job, along with the American Civil Liberties Union. The um, CCLA here in Canada has also done a good job of accruing resources that allows people to figure out, you know, what their fingerprint looks like online, uh, to trace the cookie trail backwards, so to speak, over time to see where we've been and what kinds of things people can know and claim about who we are without necessarily being able to see the, those data in real time. So there are ways in which we can make the discrete and invisible data points that are more dangerous to us more uh, discernible and legible as such, but it takes tremendous effort, Mike. Yeah, and that, that's effort that sounds like it would be uh, out of out of the capabilities of most of us. I mean, I wouldn't know how to go about doing it. Well, I mean, the, the entire premise of my postdoctoral fellowship, an award that I won from the federal government two and a half years ago, is on the basis of trying to make you know, discrete location data in the rawest sense of the term, even though I think raw data is something of an oxymoron, um, to, to be able to see measurements that can be extrapolated, for example, from uh, your smartphone, global navigation satellite system chipset, decoding the signal sent by any given set of navigation satellites in a, a, any given point in time, that the, the amount of data data points that you can extrapolate from that signal connection alone is mind-boggling, Mike. There's probably 30 of them within a single data sentence. <laughs> I can't see that data on my own as a social scientist postdoc going to Queen's University. I had to build a team, build with the forensic uh, data forensics experts, uh, analytics developers at junior and senior levels, computer engineers, computer scientists, artificial intelligence experts. These are the people that allow me to actually dig into my own smartphone to see those data points. But on my own, I haven't, there's no way. It's not possible. 
you'd have to have quite the family to be able to say, or at least quite the friend network to say, hey, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's all meet up and uh, and we'll you know we'll all do our little jobs and, <laughs> and we'll get all this information for one another. That's that's just not going to happen. So who then at the other end of things? is going to be trying to make use of this. Who, who is this useful for? It's one thing for data to exist. Leaves exist. They fall off trees. We don't go around collecting every single one of them up and measuring them and looking at them. They just kind of fall, and some of them are swept up. Some of them just kind of stay in the forest, and, and that's it. You know, Data can do that. It can be there, and if nobody's paying mm-hmm. attention to it, does it make a sound? What exactly <laughs> is at the other end of this? The context is the most important thing to think about when answering this question, Mike. It's a great question. I really appreciate the question, and it's an important one for a lot of reasons, but it's too difficult to generalize. So what I can try and do instead is is, is give maybe a specific example really quickly or two. Um, So let's, let's think about what I just talked about in the context of location data. So to a user, when you look at Google Maps, you see latitude and longitude coordinates, degrees, you know, expressed as minutes and seconds, so on and so forth. We see this in pop culture all the time. But the other data that I mentioned, the the raw global navigation satellite system coordinates that are being transmitted to Google are being purchased by third parties all the time. One of those third parties happens to be a firm based out of Paris, France, called Perdicio. You might recall (laughs) from our previous conversations or headlines elsewhere, Mike, and to our, our wonderful listener who is intently listening right now, that Perdicio was caught selling raw location measurement data to the U.S. Department of, of Defense and to Homeland Security all throughout the pandemic. But they weren't just selling, you know, raw measurements produced by GNSS chips and smartphones of Americans. They were actively harvesting from a certain population. It came from Muslim Americans as they were going to prayer at mosques across the U.S. during the pandemic. So this is an example of a company on the other side of the planet that otherwise has nothing to do with COVID governance or policy or legislation around public health or national security, especially in the U.S., building apps and working with app developers to extract raw measurements from smartphones in the U.S., but only from Muslim Americans so that data can be turned into a commodity and sold to the U.S. government. So if we take my example seriously, I think the extent to which third parties, analytics companies, social media companies, advertisers, marketers, people on Bay Street in Toronto, people who are interested in trying to build algorithms that predict movement as an intervention to help stop the spread of COVID, that list of people potentially is unlimited. And because the user cannot see the depths of the data behind the initial data point on the screen of your phone, it's a brave new world if, if you're looking to make money off of, of hoarding people's very sensitive data that they never get to see, Mike. That puts it into perspective right there. And what can we do about it? It sounds like not much. Well, I mean, if, if you're Mark Shifley's parents, I I would see a lot of value in changing your name online. I would see a lot of value in shutting off your Twitter or changing your photo and trying to de- deflect the interest that is is abusive and is tantamount to cyberbullying, things that should be putting people in jail. 
But I think on a larger scale here, Mike, the thing that we have to recognize is that there was a moment in time when the Internet could have been coded to be open. It could have been coded to be transparent. It could have been coded in a way that would allow us the foresight to see the fact that when cookies were made, HTTP cookies were made in the 90s, that they wouldn't be used to enable discrete and highly invasive tracking 20 years later. But that didn't happen. The Internet was coded to be closed. And so we have to ask the larger scale questions of what it means to just make some data points anonymous versus having to fight on a much larger, more macro scale with the forces that are actually designing the Internet to work in the name of producing entertainment points and profit points. That's what's really at stake here. Dr. Cook, thank you for the insight on this topic. We really appreciate the time today. My pleasure to all the the loyal listeners. It's really, really great to connect with you every week. Have a wonderful day. Keep safe. You too. That is Dr. Thomas Cook, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Postdoctoral Fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's University. And then, of course, the body of an eight-year-old was found over the weekend after a search that was conducted by OPP and many others. And joining us right now is OPP Constable Ed Sanchuk. Constable Sanchuk, thank you so much for being here. No worries, Mike. Thanks for having me on today. We really appreciate you taking the time. And in terms of what this weekend brought, can you take us back to Saturday when OPP were first alerted that something was wrong? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we received a call to attend uh, Cedar Drive in Turkey Point for a report of a missing child, eight-year-old child. Uh, information received was that the child was seen floating on the raft and then appeared to be in distress for abandoning the raft and attempting to swim back ashore. Uh, unfortunately, that eight-year-old little guy didn't make it back ashore. Uh, we uh, then contacted several other partners, our Norfolk County Fire Department, Norfolk County Paramedic Services, uh, JRCC, which is the Joint Rescue Coordination Center out of uh, in Trenton, uh, we engaged our OPP helicopter aviation services, and uh, we started doing a, uh, a search uh, of the water as best as we could. Um, we had the Hercules 130 flying over. Uh, we actually brought te- they brought technology in JRCC where they were able to drop flares and they used drones to attempt to locate this young fella uh, to no avail. We did search uh, from Saturday from 5:30 until the very next day, up until 2:35 in the afternoon on Sunday, uh, when our underwater search and recovery unit arrived to assist with the investigation, and as a result, uh, those members, along with our OPP Marine Unit members, uh, located the eight-year-old child deceased approximately 200 yards uh, from, from the shoreline. You even had help from residents in the area because you have a family there, and and we're in a pandemic. That sometimes there isn't anywhere to stay, but tell us a little bit about what happened there. You know, Mike, i got to be honest with you. My, uh, my heart breaks for this family. I'm a father myself not just a police officer but and a community member, but I'm a father. And I can't even imagine what this family is going through. Uh, we had witnesses provide us some really good detailed information uh, where, they were last, where they last saw this little boy in the water. And then we had uh, just the community from the Turkey Point community come together uh, with, with uh, Stranger on Stranger who left now as friends. And it made a really terrible situation just a little bit better for this family because uh, one of the cottage owners down there gave up their cottage in order for the family to stay overnight. And uh, we can't say thank you enough to everyone that uh, tried to assist us in providing us with information. Um, you know, I, I'm not usually at a loss for words, but i got to be honest with you, I'm, a, I'm at a loss for words. Uh, my heart hurts for that family. 
Well, Constable Sanchuk, we really appreciate you giving us some time and updating the situation. Thank you, and please keep safe. You as well, and just make sure you guys take care and look after each other. Absolutely. That is Constable Ed Sanchuk from the OPP. It's been that kind of weekend in this area. It's been a, a sad, tragic, no way this didn't happen, but it did kind of weekend. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.